All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? All right. There's like two of you that are awake. That's great. Listen, the 9 o'clock service was louder than you guys. What's up with that, man? You guys were able to sleep in. Come at 1030. Let's go. Wake up. Wake up. Hey, it's good to see you. I don't know about you, but I am really bummed. Here's why I'm bummed. I'm missing our one service Sunday at 10 o'clock. Anybody else missing? Anybody else missing the one, one service at 10? Ah, I want to go back to that so bad, but we can't for multiple reasons. All right, but every first Sunday of every month, we do a one service, so mark it on your calendar. Okay, I've got a lot of material to cover, and because your second service, I can go longer. So you're welcome. No, no, I'll try not to, all right? Um, pull out your message notes. Uh, pull out your Bible, smartphone, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to continue our series um, in the Gospel of John so that all may believe we're working through this gospel one verse at a time, unpacking it, understanding its meaning, how does it apply to our lives. And today we're looking at one of the most familiar passages of all passages, of all stories, and it's the story of J Jesus and Nicodemus, this religious dude. So we're going to look at it together. Let me um, start by reading God's word, John 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15. And then next week, we're going to pick up where we leave off today. So beginning in verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can, these, 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 how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know, this message is, is really on one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. The story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night and Jesus telling him, you must be born again. This is a fascinating one-on-one -on -one encounter that Jesus and this religious man had. Jesus was always having these one-on-one -on -one encounters, these face-to-face -face meetings with various people. If, if you look at his ministry, he has these one-on-one -on -one encounters with people of all economic status, people of all different social standing, 
He interacted with the, the pompous, religious, secular leaders of his day. But then he also ministered to like the lowly, those who were the outcasts, the outsiders, the, the ordinary common people of his day. John chapter 3 is really a conversation. It's a conversation that teaches us one big truth, but there's so many little details that sometimes we gloss over or we fail to see. And, and there's a little truth here that this conversation teaches us, and that is God is never, ever too busy for you. He's never too busy for you. And he's never bothered with your questions. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And some people think maybe it was later in the evening, like nine or midnight. We don't really know. We know that Jesus, in his own way, drops what he's doing. And he has this in-depth spiritual conversation with Nicodemus. I want to read verses one and two real quick, kind of, and then unpack it as we go. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So notice the word Pharisee and notice the word ruler. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what do we know about Nicodemus? Number one, he's a Pharisee. During Jesus' day, uh, historians say there was probably upwards of 6,000 Pharisees uh, during his day, during his ministry. The word Pharisee actually means separated from. And the Pharisees, they were known for being a very strict, legalistic Jewish sect, right? And it's so funny how, um, you know, things don't change. As King Solomon said, nothing is new underneath the sun. There are still very strict, legalistic, so-called believers in Christ, which by the way, the Pharisees were not believers. They were far away from God. We're gonna talk about that in a moment. They endeavored though to live their lives based on the Torah and the oral traditions. So the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, and then these oral traditions that kind of came along up, scribal oral traditions that interpreted the, the commandments in the Old Testament. Many of the Pharisees, they were so devout, they had whole books of the Torah memorized. Whole books completely memorized. I mean, I've tried to memorize passages. I've tried to like memorize the book of James and I can't even get to chapter two. Whole books of the Bible, okay? These guys were devoted, right? Um, they were not just devoted to keeping the Big Ten, the, you know, the thou shall not, right? Steal, lie, adultery, all those things. No, it's like they were focused on all of the commandments, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Now, for starters, that's a lot of commandments to remember, Right? Not just to keep, but just to remember. So they remembered all of these commandments. And, and I don't have time, but there was just all of these very meticulous things not to do or special on the Sabbath. But for the Pharisees, how they saw spiritual things and how they saw, um, yeah, spiritual things, it was about the external, right? It was, it was all about the showcase, not the warehouse, it was always, well, what's in the showcase? What are they showing other people? It was external, not internal. It was performance. It wasn't like purity before God. So number one, he's a Pharisee. So he's very religious. So the guy understands Old Testament. 
He's very acquainted with the, the truths tucked away in, in the Old Testament. And number two, he's a ruler of the Jews. Now, ruler is a key word. That, that tells us something about him. What does it say? Well, he had clout. He had influence. He had authority. He was a ruler. He wasn't a peasant. He was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was the highest court, the highest religious ruling council that governed the affairs of the land. This was a big deal. Headquarters was in Jerusalem. Sanhedrin was composed of Pharisees and Sadducees. This guy made a name for himself. He climbed the religious ladder. What appears to be success in in the eyes of man, he's attained it, right? He has influence and power and authority. He's respected by his peers. And the story tells us that this religious man with a very high up position is curious about Jesus. Makes me think about people today. People who have prominent positions, right? They've got clout, they've got influence, right? They've got money, they got fame. Guess what? They're interested about spiritual things, right? God has created us that way, right? And, and only God can ultimately bring meaning and satisfaction and, and give us our true identity in the gospel, in Christ. So Nicodemus is a perfect example of how a lot of people are. We may not see it. We may not see the curiosity that people have about spiritual things, but here's the reality. We know that God is, has created us that way, right? There, there's a hole in all of us that only God can fill, right? He's placed eternity in our hearts. So the story tells us that this religious man comes to Jesus by night. And maybe he comes to Jesus at night because of fear. Maybe he doesn't wanna be you know, publicly seen. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. Um, w- there's a very good chance this is really more, John is, doesn't give a chronology. Um, John's gospel is not written in a chronological way, but um, I think this was more on the, on the early side of his ministry. And so maybe it's fear, right? He doesn't wanna be found out. Um, Maybe this was a good time for him to come see Jesus. The crowds have been pressing. This was a good time for him to get his questions answered. We simply don't know why he came at night, right? A lot of people speculate, but we just don't know. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and then did you notice what Nicodemus calls him? He refers to Jesus as rabbi. So he gives Jesus this this term of respect. We know that Jesus was an itinerant rabbi, and so he gives them him this respect and he says, we know that you have come from God. No one could do these signs without God's help. And so what does Jesus do? So Nicodemus refers to him as, as teacher, right? But what Nicodemus doesn't realize is that he is the Messiah. The, the signs and the miracles point to the reality, the truth that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the God Man, he's God wrapped in human flesh. But notice what Jesus, how he responds. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't get caught up in the title or, or Nicodemus referring to him as teacher. He responds in verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think Jesus lasers in on the exact issue that Nicodemus was dealing with. Nicodemus says, we know you have come from God. So he didn't say, I know. He said, we know, plural, which means There's other religious leaders that are curious, right? They're seeing signs. And Nicodemus, Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, 
You must be born again. Now, I want to explain the concept of this, this spiritual rebirth, this inner transformation. But I want to give context before we go there. So point number one, every human being is born spiritually dead. We can trace this truth all the way back to the book of Genesis. We know in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first verse of the first book of the Bible just simply states that God exists. There's no argument. There's no debate, right? There, there's there's, um, there, there's um, nothing that Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, is, is trying to explain. Well, this is why God exists. No, it just simply states he exists. We know that God created Adam and Eve, put them in this beautiful garden, this utopia called Eden. And with one restriction, you can't eat from this one special tree. And God said, if you do, you will die. Punishment will be death. And we know how the story ends. They both ate from the tree, banished from the garden. As a result, there's been war and hostility between man and God ever since. Now, because of their sin, Romans 5, 12, Paul picks up on the thought. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the Bible is very clear. There are two types of death in the Bible. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. Physical death, the separation of your body and your spirit. Your body goes into the ground. Your spirit returns to God. Spiritual death is the second death. When you're placed into the lake of fire, you're banished from the presence of God. That's spiritual death. Adam's sin brought, his sin brought death brought separation. In the simplest understanding, death is separation. If you don't know Christ, it's eternal separation. And so that's what we're facing, right? Adam was our representative. We have this proclivity to sin, this bent towards committing sin and not obeying God. So in Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two, it really lets us know that we can be physically alive but spiritually dead. Look at what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Dead in what? Paul says dead in trespasses, dead in sins. So you can be physically alive, heart beating, right? Organs working, brain functioning. You've got thoughts, you can see, you can smell. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. This is what the Bible teaches. We're spiritually dead when we're born. There's no life within us. We cannot respond to God. And it takes the God of the universe by his spirit to draw you, to convict you, right? To do this work of saving grace in your life. And so God uses people to share the gospel with you. And then at some point, by God's grace, um, you respond to the gospel, so the Bible says clearly that we're, we're sinners. We're dead in our sin. It's an archery term, which means to miss the mark. So the, the mark is God's perfect, it's his perfection. Well, we miss that every time. Every time we miss the mark. And then Paul says, he says we're dead in our trespasses. Uh, another word for sin is transgression. It means to step over the boundary line. God has clearly defined what the rules and commandments are in the scripture. And, and he's clearly defined it. I mean, let's just take the top 10 commandments, right? We did a whole, 
well, I was gonna say we did a whole series on that, but that was like the intro to the life of Moses. We walked through all the Ten Commandments. You know, we've all stepped over the line. We've all violated those rules. You know, huge Boston Celtics fan. My dad brainwashed me when I was a kid, hence the green on my shoes, and I brainwashed my kids when they were really little. Before they could say mama or dada, I would say Boston Celtics, Boston Celtics. No, I got pictures of John Mark and Joshua. They were just like, they were just little tykes, man. And I had like beat LA shirts and uh, it was great. And so I've raised them up in the right tradition, right? To be Celtics fans, right? And so when you play basketball, you know, if you're on offense, you have the ball. And then the other team is defense. And let's say you're going to work a play. And the point guard takes the ball down. And he, he notices he's got a teammate in the corner. And he dishes the ball to his teammate. Teammate's in the corner. I mean, teammate takes that ball, shoots, bam, makes the three. And he's celebrating. And then the referee, you know, makes the call. Nope, your foot was on the out-of-bounds line. So here's the issue. The issue is you don't get the three points and the ball goes back to the other team. So my point is, just like the spiritual game of life, um, when you violate the rules of the game, it doesn't count. The game of life spiritually, we have violated the rules against God. Right, And so we are accountable for the violation. We're accountable for stepping on the line or stepping over the line, right? Maybe this morning you stepped over the line before coming to church. You know, maybe you said something, maybe you did something. Maybe you had some impure motive, who, who knows, right? But we step over the line all the time. Here's what God tells us in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, did you notice that? But God, comma. I'm going to do a series on all the buts in the Bible someday. There's a lot of buts in the Bible, but God. I love those two words. That right there is the gospel, but God. The first three verses, man, we stand condemned. And then there's this transition, but God. It doesn't say but you. It says but God. Being rich in mercy. Is he rich or is he poor when it comes to his mercy? He's rich, doles it out. He's got a lot of it. He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So his mercy flows from his love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. So God is merciful, he withholds. We're spiritually dead. God makes us spiritually alive. This born again experience, this new birth experience. He delivers us from sin and punishment and condemnation. And then notice Let's pick up the story. Notice verses three to eight. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Do you hear the confusion in Nicodemus' voice? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Stop real quick. Sometimes people will say, ah, see, salvation is faith and baptism. See, water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The problem is, then what do you do with the, the next phrase that Jesus says? He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, referring to water, 
and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So it's talking about physical birth and spiritual rebirth. So there's two births here. Jesus said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus, in this conversation, at this moment, he is completely perplexed. He's rattled. I mean, he, he's a religious leader that I would think he always has an answer, right? But he's not able to connect the dots. He, he misunderstands Jesus and he thinks that somehow he's got to be like physically reborn like through his mother and the womb and everything. And it just, for me, when I look at the story, to me, I just find it kind of humorous, right? I don't know if you do, but I kind of find, every time I read the story, I just kind of chuckle because I, this is my image of Nicodemus. I picture Nicodemus as a middle-aged religious man who thinks that Jesus is talking about being born again physically. And he just can't wrap his brain around it. And he's questioning Jesus. And I find it very humorous because in my life, like I'm a dad, you know, I'm middle-aged, right? Just turn, I don't even know, I don't even know how old I am. I think I turned 44, I don't know. But I got my oldest is college. I got three, the three youngest are teenagers. We came to the church when they were all little. Candace was pregnant with Luke and John Mark hadn't even started kindergarten. Here we are. Today is actually John Mark's birthday. Oh, I should have mentioned that in the first service. Today's his 19th birthday. And so my kids are bigger, you know? And I kind of feel like Nicodemus. Sometimes in life, I just can't connect the dots with them. Sometimes they say things and I'm like, I just don't understand. I don't get the lingo. I'm totally not cool anymore. Like they, they got a whole language. They got inside jokes. They say things. I'm like, I just, I don't know. I guess I'm totally uncool. Don't get it. Whatever. So Nicodemus is confused about this spiritual conversation. I get just confused in a lot of ways with my kids. But anyways, I don't know why I just told you that, but moving on. All right. The reality is, <laughs> Jesus is telling this prominent religious man in the community, I can guarantee everyone knew about him. Everyone knew his name, his pedigree, his resume, everything. Jesus doesn't mince words. This is what I love about Jesus. He's never subjective. He's never confusing. He's always very clear, very direct. He's... He speaks the truth, and when you, when you encounter his claims and the things he says in the Bible, it makes sense. Like, he's, he's just speaking plainly. He's just saying, listen, Nicodemus, you got to be born again, literally born from above. There has to be a spiritual transformation that takes place in your life. Now, if I was in Nicodemus' shoes, I probably would, be, would have been confused. But since we have the Bible and we see the gospel narrative and the story and explanations, it, it helps us. Just like there are two deaths, there are two births. And this is what Jesus is talking about. All right, point number two. Being born again is a spiritual transformation accomplished by God. It is a spiritual transformation that only God can bring into someone's life when they place faith in Christ. The, the, the phrase born again means to be 
uh, born from above or to, to make new, to be this rebirth, to re- reborn, to be remade. The Old Testament actually talked about this. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27, Ezekiel the prophet, he talks about this new covenant and, and, and about this cleansing and about this rebirth experience. Notice what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So even the prophet Ezekiel is foreshadowing a day. He's speaking of the day that the Messiah would come and he would bring about the kingdom of God and he was speaking about the new covenant that the the Messiah would, would bring this new covenant We would have this new access to to God the Father. And he speaks of this water being a symbol of cleansing. And when you place faith in Christ, you'll be cleansed. And he'll give you a new heart and a new spirit he'll put within you. You know, I liken, let me use a metaphor uh, and analogy real quick. When you come to faith in Christ, I want you to visualize a massive chalkboard filled with all of your sin. Every sin you've ever committed in the past and all the sins you'll ever commit in the future. And when you come to faith in Christ, here's what Jesus does. He takes a beautiful spiritual eraser called grace and he wipes, he removes all of the chalk off the chalkboard. He he wipes, he cleanses the chalkboard, which is he cleanses your soul. He forgives you of all of your sin. I love what Psalm 103 says, verse 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That's pretty high. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much God loves you. And then it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God is omniscient, he's all-knowing. He chooses in his omniscient will, he chooses to not remember our sin. Because God can't forget about our sin because he's God. He chooses not to remember. And he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And there's never a, a point where that meets up in the galaxy. God spiritually cleanses us. He gives us a new heart. He he makes us into a new person. There's this new creation that takes place. When you get saved, God moves in. When you get saved, God moves in. If you believe, if you believe that you're a Christ follower, but your life hasn't changed, maybe you're not a Christ follower. Because when God moves in, some things move out, right? Because when you come to faith in Christ, it's, a, it's surrender, it's deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. There's gonna be some things that he's gonna rearrange He's going to want to rearrange the furniture. He's going to want to check out all the closets. He's going to want to clean up your life. Isn't it wonderful to know that we don't have to clean up before we come to him? We come to him and he cleans us up. That's the gospel. We're not having to clean up. We can't clean up. We come to him and he cleans us up. He cleanses us. Gives us a new heart. Not only does God move in, but grace makes all things new. I love the verse in 2 Corinthians. I don't have it on your sheet, but it's that verse where it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
right? Old has passed, new things have come. When grace happens, Christ comes into your life, right? He takes up residence, out with the old, in with the new. Jesus makes all things new, right? When grace happens, we don't just receive forgiveness, we receive a new heart, new heart. When you give your heart to Christ, guess what he does? He returns it back to you, but he gives you a new one. He returns the favor, but he gives you a new heart. The Bible says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That is a spiritual heart transplant. That's what it is. There's a story that I've shared many, many years ago, and I try not to share the same story. I try to give it a few years before I share it again because some of these stories are so amazing. In the spring of 2010, a skiing accident took the life of Tara Storch's 13-year-old daughter, Taylor. What followed for Tara and her husband, Todd, was every parent's worst nightmare, a funeral, a burial, a flood of questions and tears. They decided to donate their daughter's organs to needy patients. Few people needed a heart more than Patricia Winters. Her heart had begun to fail five years earlier, leaving her too weak to do much more than sleep. Tara's heart gave Patricia a fresh start on life. Tara had only one request. She wanted to hear the heart of her daughter. She and Todd flew from Dallas to Phoenix and went to Patricia's home to listen to Taylor's heart. The two mothers embraced for a long time. Then Patricia offered Tara and Todd a stethoscope. When they listened to the healthy rhythm, whose heart did they hear? Did they not hear the still beating heart of their daughter? It indwells a different body, but the heart is the heart of their child. And when God hears your heart, does he not hear the still beating heart of his son? Because when you get saved, grace moves in. God moves in and he gives you a new heart. You're a new creation in him. Let's pick up the story and look at verses 9 to 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's point number three. If you're taking notes, the only remedy for sin is found in Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. Because we're gonna look at part two next week of this conversation. Jesus, in this spiritual conversation with Nicodemus, goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to Numbers 21. The Israelites are on the edge of the promised land. They're getting ready to go in. One generation has died. The next generation is about to occupy the land. And, and what, do you, what do you think they start doing? If you remember the series, they, they start complaining. Remember that? They start complaining and bickering, right? There's another wave of grumbling they're complaining, well, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're complaining about manna, which is what God provided every day for them. Every day, he 
miraculously makes provision for his people, which is a beautiful thing. This, this manna was like this, this um, um, sweet, flaky resin. It tastes like honey. You could, you could take the manna and it could be made into breads and cakes and pastries. It was a wonderful, direct, miraculous testimony to God's power and commitment to them. Manna was their lifeline. He was always providing for them. And so the people are grumbling, they're complaining, right? And God instantly and aggressively deals with their complaining attitudes. And you know what he did? He sends fiery serpents to bite the people which caused them to die. So people are dying. The reaction of the people, you know, basically they're saying, we've sinned, we've, we've spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses being the spiritual leader, and they're begging Moses, pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And Moses, he prays for the people, he intercedes, and God tells Moses, here's, here's, what, you, here's what I want you to do, Moses. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when they see it, they shall live. So the Bible says that Moses obeyed God. He made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole. And anyone who was bitten by a serpent, they would look at the bronze serpent and they would live. Snake bite. They would look at the pole and they would be healed. I want to read verses 14 and 15 again for you of John 3. Jesus tells Moses, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The serpent in Israel represented sin and evil. We know that. Go, go back to Genesis 3. It represented sin and evil, the fall. In Leviticus chapter 11, the serpent was considered unclean. Theologically, this doesn't make any sense at all. Right? Centuries later, this religious man comes to Jesus at night. He's curious. Big name religious guy. A lot of authority, right? Big position. Big, big man on the block. Comes to Jesus. And Jesus has this spiritual conversation. And, and then towards the end, he tells Nicodemus, basically tells Nicodemus, what was happening in Numbers 21, what was in the wilderness is actually a pointer to me. The bronze serpent, Nicodemus, that was put on a pole and lifted way high up in the air and people would see the bronze serpent and be healed, that's a picture of who I am. So just as the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent on the pole for healing, if we look to Jesus, we'll be healed of our sin problem. God told Moses, I want you to make an image of something that was really detestable in, in, in the culture and I want you to hold it up on a pole and it's gonna be a picture of the only means of deliverance from disease. People were dying and then some people, I mean, I, I'm really curious, like who were the first ones that believed and said, I'm looking to the pole, right? They looked to the bronze serpent and they were healed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine in that moment how that inspired other people to believe and to look at the bronze serpent and be healed as well. There is potent symbolism here. The healing wasn't from the bronze serpent. It was clearly from God. The bronze serpent is a great example of how God saves sinners. The people were told, 
Look at the bronze serpent, and you'll be healed, right? The snake venom wouldn't kill them. In the same way, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, if I be high and lifted up, and we know that that language is about the cross. Jesus is going to be high and lifted up someday on the cross. And if people look to Jesus, they'll be saved. Spiritually, they'll be healed. Jesus is not saying, look within, you know, some like Jedi force theology, look within, figure it out, find the truth within, discover who you are. He's not saying, you know, look to other people. He's saying, look to me. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. When we did construction on this building, basically what they did was they took the existing building, which was really old and it needed a good refreshing, right? And they gutted everything. Everything was just gutted to the studs. And I remember, you know, every day coming in and taking pictures every day of progress and meeting with the architect and the general contractor and, and their team and discussing details. But I remember one specific day during construction, they had to put two massive beams um, to be able to secure these glass roll-up doors on these really thick wooden beams. And I remember grabbing a ladder and taking the ladder, I believe, to that glass roll-up door. And I wrote the verse, verses 14 and 15 of John 3 on that wooden beam right there. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a gospel outpost. This is a lighthouse. God has determined the generation that you're gonna be a part of. He's determined your address. The book of Acts tells us that. He's determined the generation, your address, your oikos, everything. And as a gospel-centered church, we're gonna point people to Jesus. We're gonna say, listen, if you wanna, you wanna get your life right, you wanna be spiritually healed, you gotta look to Jesus. Jesus is like the, the bronze serpent that was, that was lifted up. The mission that Jesus had is our mission. And that is to point people to him. To point people to his saving grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin for us. I mean, let me say it this way. He became legally the serpent. Just like the bronze serpent was lifted up, According to this verse and this story, he legally became the serpent. He took the poison for us. Now, I've never been bitten by a snake, but if I was going to be bitten by a snake, that would be a very terrifying moment for me, right? I, I'm like, I got the eebie-jeebies, man, when it comes to snakes. I don't like snakes. Jesus took the poison. He took the venom. What I'm saying is, Jesus took the debt that he did not owe God, that we owed God. Jesus took the punishment that we 
deserved, he took it upon himself. He absorbed that. The wrath that should have fell on us fell on him. And so legally, he became the serpent. He took the poison. He absorbed that. I love what he tells Nicodemus. He said, whoever believes in him, referring to himself, may have eternal life. You know, sometimes we can get caught up on, well, I gotta be, I gotta be righteous. It's performance, I gotta, I gotta do more. And then maybe, maybe, maybe God will forgive me. Maybe I can, I can do enough good, do enough righteous deeds, and maybe God will forgive me. Maybe he'll let me to heaven. But Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Belief, trust, reliance upon him. And that doesn't just happen the moment you're converted. The moment you have this born-again experience, you recognize your sinfulness and you, you embrace Christ as, as the sacrifice, as the, the treasure of your life. No, it's something we embrace every day the rest of our lives. We have this reliance, this trust upon Jesus. We are trusting him for our salvation. He's the one that we're anchoring our lives to. And so let's make sure that in our own personal lives that we're lifting high the cross. And we're not pointing people to good works or anything else that just doesn't suffice. We're, put, we're pointing people to Christ, the only one that could bring spiritual healing into our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this story in John 3, this encounter that you have given to us between Jesus and your son and Nicodemus. Father, I, I wanna pray for maybe someone here today that maybe they're in person, maybe they're online, and, and, and God, just, just maybe, just maybe they don't know you. They've, they've never surrendered their life to you. They've never turned from their sin and placed their faith in you. God, I pray that you would do this spiritual transformative work in their life that only you can do. God, that you would show them their brokenness. You would show them their need for you. And Lord, with simple faith, they would just cry out to you and ask for forgiveness and surrender their life to you today. Father God, thank you for your son Jesus being the remedy of our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross for us and willingly and freely giving your life for us, laying your life down for your friends, the apostle John tells us. Thank you for your grace. Help us, Lord, to never take it for granted. Help us, Lord, to continue to look to you, your saving grace, 
the redemption that you've brought into our lives. Thank you for your love that you pour out continually, day after day, year after year. We thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for taking that, the venom and that poison so that we might not be eternally separated from you. Thank you for the costly gift, the sacrifice, so we can be right with you, God. God, speak to our hearts now as we worship you and we pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.